Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. During the Lenten season, there's lots of different projects that people put out there, and maybe you're already participating in some of them. I know Hallow has this 40-day challenge that people are doing, and there's always a lot of creative content being released around the season of Lent. And on today's episode, I want to bring you two different interviews that I've done, uh, one with Anthony Kolink about the Catholic teen fiction book or collective uh, called Ashes, Visible and Invisible, and also a conversation with a filmmaker, Besong, who is going to be sharing about his own Marian project that he focused on that can draw us deeper into the mystery of Mary during the season of Lent. And so I'm very excited to have Besong joining me right now. And thanks so much for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I am glad to be here. Well, Basong, tell me a little bit about yourself. So uh, I know you because you reached out to me through Twitter. And so I know that you're a filmmaker, you're a father, a game designer, a Catholic, and a fellow sinner as well. That's your Twitter profile description. Uh, But tell me where are you from and how did you get involved in filmmaking? Yeah, so um, I guess one of the running themes about me is that maybe I'm too many things at the same time but um in terms of filmmaking i think it started with my love for animation as a kid and i always used to draw these little cartoons in my textbooks instead of studying them so that's where it started i'll make these little cartoons and flip the pages and you see these stick figures moving around and fighting and that kind of just grew um to a point where i knew my drawing ability um, had its limits and the stuff I was watching I just knew I could never reach that level so I switched into live action filmmaking because I figured it was a skill that I could learn and I didn't really need an innate artistic talent to thrive so I switched in about 2017 or so and yeah I just started making films and um I guess one of the the things that I really want to bring out in my films and that kind of keeps me going is an experience that I had when I went to, my mom took me to the Westminster Cathedral in London and it was my first time in a cathedral and it was just a combination of the music and the stained glass paintings and the architecture. It just created this atmosphere that have stuck with me since, I mean, I was 10 years old at the time. And I've always wanted to try to recreate that feeling in other people. So that's kind of like why I do what I do and how I got into filmmaking. Well, I love uh, you saying the fact that, well, maybe I do too much. Like, I'm too many things because that's my life too. Of course, principally, I'm a priest, a, a pastor of some parishes. Uh, but also, I'm a writer, so this whole interview today is kind of uh, with you and this episode where I also have these other uh, 
this teen collective writing group and featuring their Lenten work. You know, it's kind of both my lives. So uh, in terms of my hobbies, so I do a lot of writing, written several books, so I, I relate there. But I also recently hosted a documentary about roadside chapels in northeastern Wisconsin. And uh, so I had a film friend of mine. He came out. He was the cinematographer. He served as the producer. I was the host, director, writer. It, it was really like a two-man show. So, you know, we didn't have all of the all the different gaffes or, or whatever um, for, for people uh, working in the film industry. But uh, so I've done a documentary myself, so I know what it's like. And we've shown uh, our documentary at different film festivals. So we've competed at them and uh, and are very grateful, you know, for the opportunity to share kind of this little aspect of Wisconsin. So uh, you worked on a project now uh, really about Mary and the Stations of the Cross. It's called Mary's Way of the Cross. It's a film project that you produced and, and directed. And I'm wondering, have you shared it with a wider audience? Did you submit it to film festivals? That's just kind of like an insider thing that I'm curious about. Yes. So um, fortunately, I actually um, have our local film group. We have a film group here in Manitoba. It's called the Winnipeg Film Group. And I submitted it to one of their festivals and they liked it so much that they actually picked it up on um, the short film version of it. So there's the, the long form version, which is an hour. And then there's the short form version, which is about 10 minutes. And so it was, the 10 minute version is screening in film festivals. And that's what the Winnipeg Film Group has picked up for distribution to um, streaming platforms and in-flight entertainment and all that kind of stuff. So I was really, really, really excited about about that that's um, a religious piece of work can have you know wings to be put in place in um, bigger platforms so I'm very grateful for that yeah definitely and that's kind of an interesting thing because as you mentioned it's a faith-based project it's about the Blessed Virgin the way of the cross and one of the things that I've experienced as I've submitted this documentary about Catholic roadside shrines in northeastern Wisconsin is that I think sometimes there's been an anti-Catholic bias and like uh, a film festival that we should have been selected for because it's a Belgian-American project. So I would have assumed that maybe a Belgian film festival would have picked us up, but, but they didn't. Or even in the county where this is based out of, so in Door County, there's a film festival. We were selected for the film festival, but we were not selected for in-person. We were only selected for the virtual. And I, I was thinking about that myself. And I'm like, well, here, here I am. I live in Door County. It's a Door County project. I have a huge following of people in Door County that we could pack a theater for a showing. And we were selected for the virtual. And so as I thought about that and processed it, I wondered if it was partly because of that Catholic, anti-Catholic bias, maybe, you know, they would think, oh, you're talking about Mary, you're talking about the saints. So, you know, the Protestants who might be at the film festival might be offended. So, so I kind of understand that, I guess. But, but what, what has the reception been then as you show this and as maybe secular people are seeing this at uh, the Manitoba Festival, for example, uh, what are the reactions? The reactions have been, to my surprise, um, <laughs> they, they've been great. And I think one of the reasons um, 
that I I really strove for a high quality bar in the aesthetics and the visuals and the sound design is because I wanted it to stand on its own as a beautiful piece of art. And, you know, people go to cathedrals and they they listen to Gregorian chants, non-Christians, non-Catholics. They do that because those things are beautiful works of art um, by themselves. You know, they, they, they automatically draw people towards God, even though um, they might not necessarily be preachy or that kind of thing. So that's the approach I took with Mary's Way of the Cross. I wanted to make something so compelling and immersive and cinematic that it would appeal to not just Catholics or, or the wider Christian groups, but even the secular crowd. And the response I got from, um, it's, it's screened publicly in one film festival now. It's going to screen in D.C. at um, the Christian World Film Festival as well. But so far, the reaction has been pretty amazing. Everybody's been commenting on, on the visuals and the sound design and all that, the stuff that I really, really, really put a lot of work into. So I'm, I'm happy about it. Now tell me, why did you want to make this film, Mary's Way of the Cross? What was your inspiration? Why share it? Well, that's a long story. That's three years in the making, but uh, <laughs> it, it kind of started in my own parish. Actually, I was I was at mass one day, and I just I just noticed. I don't know if it was for the first time or what was different about this time, but I just noticed the. Um, the um, pictograms on the side of the wall that depicted the stations. And it was just the way it was lit. And it just struck me that, hey, this is, this is kind of cinematic. And it kind of just drew me in into that moment. And so I wanted to create uh, a cinematic version of that. But of course, I knew that I couldn't make The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> I couldn't make a historical drama so I decided to make it um, as a psychological drama instead. And who best, who best to dive into the reflective um, um, mindscape than our blessed mother? And so it, it was, it was a very interesting challenge for me to to go through the mind of of the mother um, to approach it through her eyes and her heart and to see how she went through the entire ordeal. So that that's kind of where it started from. And how did you go about shooting it now? So there are 14 stations of the cross. So do you go through each of the 14 stations? Do you have Veronica? Do you have Simon of Cyrene? Uh, and how does Mary then interplay as the other stations are uh, unfolding? Yes, so what I did was, um, I shot it as as if we are inside the mindscape of Mary. So Mary is the only character in the entire film. And what I did was I shot each station in a different parish in my province. Um, I repeated one station twice, my home parish. <laughs> I kind of cheated there. But so we move from, so we go through 13 different parishes in my parish in my province and we see mary in this in these mindscapes um where she has her lantern her lantern is the only source of light and so she's just moving through these spaces and reflecting 
on the events that are happening in the outside world, which we don't get to see. We just hear the narration of the events that are happening. And so it's through that, um, it's through the sound design and the music that we kind of immerse ourselves into her mind. Because I want to stay with her as she reflects um, on the events that are happening. So we're always in her mindscape, in her mind, in the silence, in the quiet, um, or from mind as she's experiencing these things. So let me get this right. So Mary doesn't speak in the film that you produced or directed, but there's Mary is there. She's unfolded in each mystery. She's holding the lantern. But then you have a narrator who's kind of leading the whole uh, meditation? Yes, that is correct. And did you write the script then? Yes, so I wrote the script in in a kind of rhyming structure. So it's a very simple, poetic um, rhyming scheme. Um, and I kind of based it on a couple of things, including there is a Stations of the Cross book titled Mary's of the Cross by Richard Fury. So that was kind of one of my main references. But I, I kind of I rewrote all the stations so that it could rhyme and have this sort of melodic um, tone to it. So it sounds more like poetry. Yeah, I'm just thinking here that, you know, so if this is an hour-long production and there's 14 stations, yeah. you're spending about three minutes on each one of those stations? Exactly, yeah. And then... There's um, So between each station, there's an interlude where we hear the music. And so in, in each interlude, there's a symbol that forms on the screen as the cantor is singing. And each of those symbols are tied to um, the Blessed Mother in, in some way, shape, or form. So, for example, you might see uh, a rose petal form on the screen. You might see a lily um, there's some African symbols I included in there. And so we have 14 different symbols in each of the interludes between each station that forms on the screen. Now, I think one of the interesting and unique aspects of your film, Mary's Way of the Cross, focusing on the stations of the cross from Mary's perspective, is that Mary is cast as an African uh, woman, maybe. Uh, I don't know if the correct language would be to say African-American or, or, or whatnot, so you can correct me there. Um, but so we have kind of this unique portrayal. So why was that important to you? Because you're a Nigerian uh, by ethnicity and living in Canada. So, so I'm sure that this somehow resonates with you and your cultural expression. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the decision was kind of pretty straightforward. Um, typically, um, we depict, um, we express characters in our art um, according to the ethnicity of the artist. And, you know, the, our Catholic Church is super diverse um, worldwide. Mary is depicted in, you know, as an Asian woman, as um, a European woman, Italian, um, mestizo, Mexican. Um, so for me, it was just, you know, if I'm going to depict Mary, she's going to be in sort of, my own image, <laughs> to put it to put it that way. So it was kind of a pretty straightforward decision there. And following kind of in the tradition that all our great Catholic artists have done over the centuries, um, I, I kind of just wanted to make my own, my own tiny little contribution. And on top of that, 
in as far as the cinematic form goes, um, I I don't think we have too many examples of of a dark skinned Mary. So I thought, hey, I'll just add my little touch there as well. So I know because I've spoken with Roma Downey and she played Our Lady in I think the Bible, the miniseries that was on the History Channel. She went on and she directed a film called The Resurrection or produced a, a film, The Resurrection, that was on Discovery Plus. And, um, and so they had a different Mary there. But she could really resonate and reflect about Mary... Uh, in terms of having played her and having stood at the foot of the cross. She said something very beautiful to me one time, Roma did. She said that Mary stood at the foot of the cross so that Jesus could look down into the eyes of love. And that's something that she said that's always remained with me from that interview I did. But um, the, the young woman then that you have play Our Lady, what was that experience like for her? Did she share any of that, I guess, you know, kind of the spiritual significance that it meant for her? Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the things I told her was, you know, to just imagine herself, um, to put herself in Mary's shoes in the moments that it was happening. You know, as a mother watching her son be tortured and, and killed. And so... I, I tried to ground her into the reality of the events that were taking place. Um, and so that, that really helped. That really helped a lot. And man, she's just an amazing actress. I mean, she, she brought, you know, the whole, the entire one hour film, she's the only character on screen. And it's really up to her performance to grab, to immerse the viewer into, into those scenes. And, I think she just did an incredible job. So I was very fortunate and lucky. I'm curious, uh, Basong, a little bit about your own Marian devotion. So uh, what comprises it, or what does your devotion to Our Lady look like? Because obviously to tell this story of the Way of the Cross from Mary's perspective meant that you had a love for Our Lady already in your life. So um, what, what does your own Marian devotion look like? Oh, that's I way back when I was a kid with the rosary. And I'm not going to lie, I wasn't a huge fan when my mom used to um, walk us around the house in the evenings and we'll pray, you know, five decades of the rosary. But it, it's one of those things that um, when you leave your home, it kind of sticks with you. It's always there in the background. And so I've, I've kind of come around to, to liking, even loving it. And I don't pray all 15 decades the way my mom does. I mean, she's just, she's just a trooper. But, um, but the rosary is, is it. I've got one in my desk drawer and every, you know, chance I get, I, I try to say a decade. Um, so that's, that's my go-to. Definitely. And of course, you know, the sorrowful mysteries, you having done the uh, Stations of the Cross now kind of makes the s sorrowful mysteries a bit more, alive in the perspective of Our Lady as well. So um, this uh, project of yours, Mary's Way of the Cross, is available online, I believe, and people um, can purchase it, I believe. So can, can you just share how people can watch this cinematic presentation of the Station to the Cross and really enter into the deep mystery of Mary and her suffering uh, alongside Christ? 
Absolutely. So the it's available on the website maryswayofthecross.com and um you can what you can if you're an individual it's 10 bucks for a year and you can watch it as many times as you want. Um if you're a parish, if you want to do some kind of public screening or host an event, um it's also available on the site it's 100 bucks and you can you can share the login credentials with your parish or on your parish website or that kind of thing. So all the details are on the site. So as of right now, you have to pay for it. Do you ever envision that it'll be released widely on YouTube or on a platform? Yes. Yeah, so I, I am hoping I've submitted it to um, formed.org, which is available for to many parishes. And so if it does get approved and if it does get on there, then it'll be much, much more widely available to parishes and the, their congregations to watch. So uh, fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I provide formed to my parishioners. And, uh, you know, I know some people that work over there at the Augustine Institute. So maybe I'll put in a good word for you. Well, Basong, I'm so very grateful you reached out that you wanted to share Mary's Way of the Cross with my How They Love Mary audience. And I always think it's a beautiful thing for us to reflect on Lent with Our Lady. It's why I wrote a book, A Lenten Journey with Mother Mary. And uh, really, your uh, film, Mary's Way of the Cross, can help us journey with Mary during those last days and hours of Jesus's life as she stood there faithful to the last. So thanks so much, Basong, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I once again appreciate it. And... Yeah, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. And listeners, I invite you to stay tuned for part two of this episode, kind of a rare situation where I have two interviews and I'm bringing them together into one. So stay tuned for my next interview about Ashes, Visible and Invisible, a collective anthology of short stories meant for Catholic teenagers. Hey, everybody, it's Father Edward Looney here and delighted today to be having a conversation and it's quite appropriate it's for Catholic teens called Ashes, Visible and Invisible. And today I'm speaking with one of the contributors, uh, Anthony Collink. And uh, Tony is a law professor, a podcaster, a speaker, and an author of award-winning fiction and nonfiction. And he is a part of the Catholic uh, Teen Writers Collective. And uh, he's joining me today. So thanks so much for being with me. Father, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate uh, all of your valuable time. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about Catholic teen fiction. So why does this collective, this group of people exist to write Catholic teen fiction? So we, you know, we are a group of six, currently there are 16 of us in catholicteenbooks.com. And I would encourage folks to take a look at, at the website, catholicteenbooks.com. Pretty easy to remember um, because there are so many great books there for teenagers. And what, what was going on is a lot of us are members of the Catholic Writers Guild. That's where I've met some of the folks who um, are associated with Catholic Teen Books. Um, and, and what wound up happening was those of us who were writing for teen audiences, and, and we, we call ourselves Catholic teen books. Of course, everything we write is, is uh, you know, totally compliant with the Catholic faith, but not everything we write is just for Catholics. Uh, some of the books are more Catholic than others, but they all are 
you know, Christian in their worldview and, uh, and, and are easily digestible by any, any family, uh, you know, of faith. So um, even if, uh, if there are non-Catholics listening, um, you know, it's not just for Catholics. But uh, so there were a bunch of us who were out there writing for teenagers. And as you mentioned, I had my Harwood Mysteries series uh, by Loyola Press. And um, when I, so when I started publishing those with Loyola and I saw that there were all these other great authors out there, um, you know, I petitioned to join Catholic Teen Books. And um, so I was actually their 15th out of 16 authors. So I'm a little Johnny come lately, but uh but it was really started by uh, the early members were Leslie Wall and Susan Peek. And they kind of, uh, I think the way Leslie tells the story, you know, um, met at a, a homeschool convention where they were selling their books and people were asking them, gosh, I wish there was a place where we could get all of your these kind of books. And that was sort of the, you know, aha moment for them. Maybe we should have a website that does that. And so it's sort of grown from there. Um, we are all different publishers. Some of us are self-published. Some of us uh, are with uh, different Catholic publishers uh, mostly, but um, or Christian publishers. Um, but basically we are, are, you know, they're saying, hey, if you have a kid who's a teenager, um, middle school, high school, even, uh, you know, college age, uh, there are a lot of great books uh, that we want people to be reading because there's just too much garbage out there for our teens to consume right now. And and most, I think I'm the only guy actually out of the 16 of us. Um, almost everybody else is is either a mother um, or at least a woman, but many moms, you know, who know from personal experience uh, that it's tough to find good books for teens. Yeah, and that's one of the things we see in the culture, kind of, we see it not only in literature and books, but we see it in television and movies, that kind of the invasion of morality, of immorality, if we could say that. So so every book or TV show these days kind of has their token, here's a transgender character, here is someone in the LGBTQ plus movement. And of course, those contradict our values as Catholics. And uh, that's why your books, why all of these authors came together, so that we could know that these books are, are first of all, moral. They're going to communicate some sort of uh, message uh, to, to the reader and such. But you're a father, as you mentioned, so uh, you're one of the only, if not the only guy. So how how did you become an or how did you start writing books? Maybe that's the first question. Did you use your kids as kind of uh, the bouncers? So like, did you bounce your stories off of them and see what their reactions were? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm actually a lawyer and a law professor. I'm at Ave Maria School of Law in Naples, Florida. Um, but um, I retired from the military in 2012 after spending uh, 21 years in the Air Force. And you do a lot of writing as a lawyer, um, a lot of nonfiction writing, legal briefs, journal articles, and this kind of thing. But I always kind of had this creative fiction streak in me. It just ne was never really fully developed uh, until I joined the Catholic Writers Guild, probably in 2007, 2008. And it was at that same time that uh, I was driving across the country with my kids um, at that point, we might not have had all of them, but yeah, we did. Um, we had all five of our kids at that point. And we were heading to Colorado and we started talking, especially I had a conversation with my son who was a teenager at that time. 
and my wife, and we were kind of saying, well, you know what, wouldn't it be cool to write a book for teens that we wouldn't have to worry about, you know, certain things? And what kind of book would we want to write? And so that's how I sort of got into the Harwood Mysteries, which takes place in 12th century England. And, you know, it's kind of historical fiction, adventure, mystery. You know, I was going for like a Harry Potter vibe with sort of a historical uh, twist. But because it's set in the Middle Ages at a Benedictine Abbey, there's also a lot of organic sort of, uh, you know, um, faith-based messages that just are naturally present in the environment. But yeah, to answer your question, my son was very instrumental in especially uh, that first book, um, but really all the books. And even though he's much older than a teenager at this point, book four just released in October and book five is coming out uh, in 2023, I still run every one of my books past him and he gives me a lot of feedback because he's just a really smart guy and um, he has a sense of storytelling. Uh, and so he he can challenge me. Um, and in fact, I, I've changed several of my plot points in some of my books just based on his feedback and my wife's feedback also has been very valuable in that. So that that's kind of my story of writing. Um, but each of each of the authors of Catholic team books, uh, you know, I think has similar um, experiences where they, you know, worked, you know, because um, they were all almost all parents of kids who were teenagers. And uh, and I think they all have that kind of teen input, uh, if you will. Sure. Now, so there are these collective books or maybe, you know, as a scholar, I would call them anthologies. So they're different stories that are collected by different authors. And Ashes, Visible and Invisible is the latest release. It just came out here in 2023. Ashes, kind of Lenten theme. And so it's, uh, you know, speaks to us about the current situation, the time of the church that we're in. But there are other uh, books in the collective as well. In fact, we'll have St. Patrick's Day coming up not too sh- not too far in the future. And there's kind of the St. Patrick's Collective, if I'm not mistaken, and, and a few others. So uh, just tell me about the collective and the anthologies in general. So I think, uh, you know, these started before my time. There are four anthologies right now, um, Secrets, Gifts, Treasures, and Ashes. And each of them have the subtag visible and invisible, which, of course, you know, we can get from the creed or just this idea that there's more to the, the world than just what we see. There's also the spiritual world. So that's sort of the um, the tagline in all of them. But uh, gifts actually sort of like an Advent Christmas set of anthology uh, stories um, with a similar theme of that that holiday uh, season. Uh, I am not part of that one. Secrets uh, was one where they, you know, all of the anthology stories had to do with a secret of some sort uh, being involved. So it was more thematic. Treasures is the one you mentioned. That was our, our most recent release before Ashes. I was part of that one, thankfully. And uh, I think there were maybe eight of us, eight uh, out of the 15 at that point, who contributed a story. And what we decided to do with that one, which was a lot of fun, is we started with St. Patrick himself, and we created a fictional relic that he touches. And this relic then winds up in all eight of the stories all throughout time, uh, going through the Middle Ages to modern day, even to a future dystopian um, storyline, where the same relic shows up in all of our uh, stories. So that one was kind of a lot of fun because we we took 
the same you know item and moved it through history uh you know and then ashes you know the the collective wanted to to do something for lent they thought you know there's not enough you know resources out there that would appeal to teenagers especially and so the idea was and there's 10 of us actually on this one this is i think the most authors that we've ever had on one anthology and the theme really is just something penitential uh you know either you know the story takes place during lent or it has a you know aspects of lent you know that uh you know permeate the plot and this type of thing and uh yeah so that's uh it's something that each story they're not connected to each other um and so in that way they're also good because you can have teens just kind of pick it up read one and you can even read it throughout lent perhaps uh if, if you can put it down i mean the good the stories are pretty good yeah so this isn't like a teenage lenten devotional there are some of those out there uh, a good friend of mine katie prejean mcgrady she wrote a lent day by day or one day at a time, or something like that. And so that's a devotional, but these are just stories that concentrate with a Lenten theme. One of them I saw had the theme of sacrifice, for example. Now, you contributed a story. You're one of the 10 authors. So what's the what's kind of the introduction to your story that you contributed? How does it connect to the Lenten theme? Yeah, so my story is called Lucy and the Forsaken Path. Um, in, in Treasures, the other anthology, I had another Lucy story. Uh, it was Lucy and the Hidden Clover. Uh, and that was the, uh, you know, this clover was actually the relic uh, that was going through the storylines. And Lucy is actually the main, uh, the main female character in my Harwood Mysteries series. Uh, she is, uh, my protagonist is Zan. Uh, he's the one that winds up at the Benedictine Abbey. Lucy is also kind of there. Her dad dropped her off at the nunnery uh, while he was traveling around England. And so she's kind of there at the same time. And they solve these different mysteries. Uh, that's kind of the initial premise. So, but Lucy, because she was sort of the secondary character, she didn't have as much limelight as Zan. So I wanted her to kind of have a, a forum where her backstories could be told. And so uh, Lucy and the Forsaken Path actually is, you know, she's traveling now with her dad in uh, in England in 12th century, uh, 1185, and she comes upon a leper colony, which there were many of these, uh, you know, in uh, England and throughout the world at that time. And so she encounters a leper and uh, her dad and, and other, you know, men sort of, you see the response to leprosy that was going on in the middle ages and and there's also sort of a father-daughter issue going on between lucy and her dad and so uh the themes that kind of you know come up in in my story specifically are sort of repentance forgiveness alms to the poor those kinds of uh you know themes it's not uh, a you know explicitly a lenten story uh, where it takes place. Actually, Haunted Cathedral, book two in my series, is a Lenten book. It takes place during the 40 days of Lent, but this actually takes place right after that book. So, um, but yeah, so that's that's an example. Mine is probably one of the lighter connections to Lent. Uh, some of the other stories are explicitly taking place during Lent uh, or deal with specifically, you know, a, you know, especially a contemporary story uh, dealing with, you know, teens during Lent doing something too. So um, and it varies depending on the author and the story. And, and a lot of our authors did connect characters from some of their other works 
in these short stories too. So you sometimes uh, get a chance to know some of the characters that you already might have some exposure to if you read any of that author's other works. Yeah, there's a few that stand out to me as I kind of look at the one-sentence synopsis. When Liz's faith journey hits a roadblock, will an unexpected detour and chance encounter set her back on track? Or struggling with loss, hunger, and temptation, Ethan finds himself walking in the steps of Jesus. So that one really has a religious focus. But here's an interesting one. When a risky Ash Wednesday mission to sterilize T-Rex eggs goes wrong, fasting is the least of Joshua, Daryl, and Harry's worries. Do you know anything about that story? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Corinna Turner is the author of that short story. And Corinna is um, our, our resident Brit. She actually lives in the United Kingdom. And uh, she is a very prolific writer. And one of her series is called Unsparked. It's sort of like Jurassic Park of the future, you know, living where the dinosaurs have been, uh, you know, brought back into existence, sort of in the Jurassic Park kind of a way. And uh, and she has characters who are specifically Catholic, um, who are living in this sort of dystopian future. And so she has a lot of short stories and novellas and actual novels in this series. And uh, and so um, you can always be uh, sure with one of her stories, there's going to be a dinosaur in there and there's going to be some very strong faith elements. And she's able to you know do this seamlessly. It's, it's really amazing what she does with that series. Uh, she's also famous uh, for the I Am Margaret series, which is another dystopian series people might know her for. Uh, but yeah, she, her stories are always pretty delightful because who doesn't love a good dinosaur story? You know, you don't see that that much uh, dinosaur Catholic fiction out there. Yeah, that's a motif you don't see often. In fact, like as a little kid, you play with dinosaurs maybe for a few years and then you learn a little bit about them in school. But then you never really think about that part of God's creation. So it kind of helps us to revisit as, you know, you're writing for teens. They revisit their younger days when dinosaurs and that were a part of their life so uh, uh and their learning uh so ashes visible and invisible 10 different stories great for catholic teenagers where can people pick up a copy so your your best bet i mean you can of course get it on amazon uh it is uh it is both an ebook and also a print book my author copies are waiting for me um, I think they're they're in the mail on, on, on the way. So I wish I had one I could just show you right now, but I know you'll put the cover on here. Uh, it's a great cover, uh, but you can get them uh, um, on catholicteenbooks.com. Um, the buy links are there also. And, um, you know, and, and yeah, all the places you can, you know, buy books wherever you get your books. In fact, we like to always say, you know, go to your local bookstore or your Catholic bookstore, especially, and ask them to stock it or order it for you. Um, you know, we, we do get a lot of business through Amazon, but we are all very cognizant of the fact that there's a lot of mom and pop independent bookstores and Catholic bookstores that are suffering because of Amazon uh, being so popular. So if you have the option to go to your local store, we would first encourage you to do that. Yeah. And another option, too, is maybe ask your local library to carry it. Because then yes. that gets it into the library. Not only are you going to read it, but then hopefully it'll touch, you know, someone else. So it could be a, a moment of evangelization and discovery for, for young people as well. So, well, this has been a delightful conversation about ashes, visible and invisible. 
uh, publication of Catholic teen books. You can learn more about it. I'll post a link so that you can head on over to their website and find all of these authors who are writing very wholesome books that will enrich your child's life. So thanks so much, Tony, for joining me today. Thank you, Father, for having me. God bless you.